for the privilege that we have to gather freely in a land that we live in and without fear of death, that we can come and meet and study your word together. I pray that you will open our eyes and apply truth to our hearts where you want to deal with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, a husband and a wife who worked uh, for the circus went to an adoption agency to inquire about the possibility of adopting a child. And in hearing their desire to adopt a child, the social workers naturally raised doubts about the suitability um, given their on-the-road circus lifestyle. So in response, the couple produced photos of their 45-foot motor home, which was clean, well-maintained, and equipped with a nice bedroom for a child. Still concerned, the social workers raised other questions about the opportunity for education on the road. Well, the husband and wife replied, we have arranged for a tutor who will teach the child all the usual subjects along with French, Spanish, and some computer skills as well. Feeling better about the request, the social worker probed one more time regarding the child's exposure to rough-and-tumble circus environment. Well, they were assured that there are 17 other children with circus parents who were well-adjusted and well-cared for. Uh, They had a nanny selected for the child that was certified expert in pediatric care, welfare, and diet. While having all their questions answered, the social workers were finally satisfied to begin the process. And they asked the couple one last question. What age child are you hoping to get to adopt? And the couple replied and said, well, it really doesn't matter as long as the kid can fit into the canon. Oh, yeah. All right. Well, how common it is in our day for people to judge churches based on the size of the membership, based on the appearance of the building and its accommodations, based on the popularity of a pastor in the community, or their music, or their ability to entertain people and make them feel good. So many churches are a part of a strategy or a movement that is seeker-sensitive, and their goal is to have lost people come in from the community to the church and be made to feel good so that they'll keep coming. And often this has led to trying to entertain them in order to keep them there. Well, we're starting the study of a particular church today that Paul founded on a second missionary journey. And if you compare this church in Thessalonica to many of the churches in our day, People in Thessalonica found no entertainment, no comfy auditorium, no amazing music program, no large wealth represented, and certainly no social or political influence. To be a part of this church would actually bring on persecution and affliction. But this is a church Paul was so very, very thankful for, one that he spoke so proudly about to other people. So as we dive into chapter 1, we are going to see the reason why this body of believers was so admired and so appreciated by the Apostle Paul and others. And we need to learn them from, from them so that we emulate their godliness in our own lives and in our involvement in, the own, in our own churches that we're a part of. As you recall from the overview, this church was a large, or the city rather, uh, was a large city that Thessalonica believers were in, about a quarter of a million people. It was the capital of Macedonia, which is now modern-day Greece. It was a seaport city with a center for trade and commerce, and it had that very important Roman highway going through it, so people were coming and going. And Paul founded this church that was in the midst of enduring much persecution, and that persecution just kept intensifying. 
You may recall that Paul had preached for three weeks in the synagogue there and that many had come to believe the gospel message. Paul had told Timothy and Silvanus to remain there and help these believers before they joined him later. And as time went on, Paul was concerned for these believers and their welfare. So Timothy was sent back to check on them and then to report back to Paul. Paul wanted to, be, uh, to assure them of his love and concern for them. He also wanted them to know that there was no validity to these rumors about him being a charlatan just wanting their money. There were also issues about end times that had come to confuse them. And Paul wanted them grounded in their understanding regarding Christ's return. So we are reading really a personal letter from a spiritual father to his spiritual children. Uh, the word of God inspired by God himself. I am grateful for John MacArthur's uh, book and Warren Wearsby and some of my husband notes and a few others who helped me put this together. So qualities of a godly church. We look at verses one and two. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. So these three men mentioned in verse 1 all knew these believers well. They had been there with the founding of this church. They had been there in following up as well. Notice the word church. That literally means called out ones or elect ones. The work of salvation is the work of God from start to finish. So when a person puts their faith in Jesus to be forgiven of all their sins, they become part of a spiritual union in God, the Father, and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul makes clear here, very clear, the deity of Jesus being equal to God the Father. So when those who come knocking on your door who believe otherwise, there is text after text that Jesus claimed to be deity and where he's presented as deity. It is because of the work of God that a person can experience grace, which is God's undeserved favor, and peace, which comes only because we're no longer at war with God, and we now have peace with him, and that is the only way our hearts can have peace from him. So Paul wanted these believers to live their lives in light of this truth. Paul was so thankful to God for all of them, and he continually prayed for them. He wanted their growth to continue and their faith persevere in such hard times. People who have been chosen by God to be his children are going to grow in their faith and there are qualities that are going to emerge from their lives. And Paul now speaks of these in verse 3. He speaks and saying, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and your labor of love and your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of of our God and Father. So here we have the real picture, the real explanation, the real demonstration of what a healthy church is, not based on externals. This body of believers had a work of faith. They had been transformed by the gospel message that they had embraced, and their, their behavior, their lifestyle, their deeds validated this. In other words, their work of faith was the godly way they were living their lives in their community and the godly deeds that they were involved in doing and serving others. These deeds could never earn salvation because that is a free gift of God. But it is clear in Scripture when a person experiences salvation, they will produce fruit by their conduct because it will now honor the Lord. We're reminded in Ephesians 2.10, not only that we are saved by grace through faith, that's not by works, but it's so that... 
we will walk in works that God has prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. So if you profess to know Jesus, then your life should be characterized by works such as loving others, not just in saying that, but in your actions. To an outsider then, looking into your home, let's say, or into your church that you're a part of, I wonder if this can be said of you or of me. Paul also speaks of their labor of love. True believers love other believers, even they love their enemies. And we are commanded again and again to love one another fervently from our hearts. We know we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren, 1 John 2, 9. So we all know that love is the fruit of the Spirit. But notice this love is spoken of as a labor of love. In the Greek word for labor, it speaks of wearying toil done to the point of exhaustion. In other words, it is a true effort done with selfless love, even at great personal sacrifice of time and energy. Again, we have to look at a mirror, this mirror of scripture here, to see, is that what I am? Does that reflect the kind of labor of love that I have for other people? This is the true mark that they belong to God who had called them. They also had a steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of God and Father. Their hearts and minds were fixed on anticipating being with Jesus in that future glory day when uh, they will receive their inheritance. We are to be looking for that blessed hope, the appearing of our great God and Savior, as Titus 2 says. Paul was absolutely certain that in the future there was laid up for him a crown of righteousness, and he says, for all, and it's true for all who have loved his appearing. So ladies, do you live in light of hope? This is our greatest encouragement to keep pressing on in this life when everything around us is so very dark. We have an eternal home. God has an eternal purpose for our lives so that no matter what, we have to keep leaning into this hope, reminding ourselves of this hope. It is because of this hope that we can have steadfastness or perseverance, the ability to stick with the situation, stay in it, even though the pressure doesn't lighten. We have an eternal home awaiting us. We have a faith that overcomes the world. And we have a sovereign God who reigns over all that happens in this world, and that means all that happens in our lives. And he is worthy of our trust. He is the one who gives hope. And it's not a wishful thinking kind of hope. Rather, it's an anticipation with an absolute certainty that Christ will return. And we will then triumph over all of the struggles in this life. That is our future. There is a finish line, ladies. So as we grow in faith, as we make progress in our labor of love, as we keep pressing on with a hope that endures, uh, one day we will finally be with him. That old hymn reminds us of the truth that it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see him. One look on his dear face, all sorrows will erase. So gladly run the race till we see Christ. Well, Paul rejoiced greatly because these were the realities that he saw and heard of in these believers' life, which was the assurance that they really were believers. Their work of faith was because of the work God had done. Verse 4, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. Clearly, those whom God chooses, he changes. Their new life in Christ could not be hidden. Um, 
as Paul says, knowing, brethren, knowing here speaks of perceiving or seeing that the believers in this church were absolutely real and genuine. Brethren is the word he used, which is a word used to speak of true believers in Christ who are his own children. They are beloved by God because they are recipients of his amazing love of God in their hearts. I know it's not easy to understand that believers are elect, chosen by God, apart from human effort. But if you honestly read through scripture, you see verse after verse that shows us the only reason anybody responds to the prompting of the Holy Spirit in their lives is because God is doing a work in their heart. Scripture says, Ephesians 2, we're all born dead in trespasses and sins. So we are dead. There's nothing in us. But God begins that work in us. And at the same time, the scripture also teaches that everyone is personally responsible to respond to the light and the witness all around them of creation, that internal witness God put in every person's heart, even though they suppress that truth. So we're all responsible. So God has that all worked together with no problem. (laughs) We don't have to understand all of this, but we take him at his word and what he says is to be true. We are commanded to pray for the lost and to share the gospel with those who don't know him. It is up to God to do a work in making a heart understand what's being said. And that was clearly the case here in verses 5 through 10, their conversion, as Paul remembers it, he says, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in the power and in, of the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. So as Paul reflects back on the time when he had left Philippi after being beaten, <laughs> put in prison, abused and all that, he had made his way to this town. And he's reflecting, when the gospel came to to them, he reminds them that Timothy and Sylvanus shared this message along with him of salvation and its power to save and transform their lives. This is only the work of God. The message brought to them wasn't just a bunch of words. It wasn't just, let's have a sit-down debate about Greek philosophy. It wasn't just talking about new ideas. The truth was given to them, and it was accompanied by the power of God. It is the power of God that takes truth, has it enter into a person's heart and soul, and then saves them because they're convicted of their sin when they hear the message. Only the Holy Spirit can take a spiritually dead heart and bring it to life. And Paul and the others saw the power of God at work as these people came under conviction of sin, hearing the message. He reminds them that when we came to you uh, preaching this message of hope, they proved their character to be men of compassion and caring and gentleness. We'll see more of that next week. He says in verse 6, You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So these new believers followed and imitated the message and the behavior given by the messengers who gave it to them. Imitators is where we get our English word to mimic. Scripture makes it clear that a believer is a new creation, so there are new behavior patterns as one begins to change so that holiness begins replacing ungodliness. Remember, these people were living in a very pagan environment, and certainly we all live in an incredibly pagan environment. Our gods may not be stones or carved wood or the sun or the moon, but certainly the gods of our culture are our bodies, our money, our prestige, our home, our family, our children, 
whatever, those other things that become idols in people's lives, education, whatever. But we see here these people living in a pagan environment completely changed. Embracing this message did not mean that now life was going to be a breeze for them. They would have never understood a concept that this is going to be your best life now. Because in reality, what they experienced after receiving the word was incredible tribulation. And even in the midst of trials, though, they had joy from the Holy Spirit. You cannot create joy because you will it to be so, especially while suffering. As they turned from God to serve idols, and that's the whole point. Isaiah 53 reminds us, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned and gone our own way. That's the condition of every human heart. And it's only when you hear the gospel message that Jesus died to pay for your debt of sin that there's a complete turn and going the other direction. Clearly, as they turned from their idols to serve God, it angered their family. It angered friends. It angered their bosses. Um, and they, many of them lost their jobs, lost relationships with all the people that were important to them whether it was the radical Jewish leaders who had gone after Paul with opposition, as well as unbelieving Jews and maybe pagan Gentiles working together, they brought persecution to these believers because they spoke the same thing Paul had spoken to them because it changed their lives. Notice they experienced much tribulation. They faced incredible attacks and pressures, but they still didn't lose their joy. They knew this is not all there is. Certainly they had seen the example of Paul and the others who suffered, yet still had faithfully came to them, come to them and given them the gospel message. And so they chose to do the same. Only joy that comes from the Holy Spirit can help a person endure tribulation and trials and persecution. Paul says, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. What an example these people set for other small church groups popping up all around. They may have been new in their faith, but they were living examples and models of faithfulness under persecution and of sacrificial giving. You pick this up when Paul mentions them specifically when he's writing to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 8. He's speaking of the Macedonia, or the Thessalonians, and he says that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. These people had lost their jobs. They were struggling to survive. But when there was a need made known to them, they gave liberally. So even though they lost so much financially with their persecution they endured, they still gave what they could to help others in need. So I wonder if anyone can say that of you or me or of the church that you attend. Their faith, their hope, and love should spur us on to be women like them. This is our turn to run the race. We're in this generation. This is our time, ladies. And we must be the faithful ones and the loving ones to pass truth onto others, not only in our words, but by the way we act. Verse 8, for the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone forth, so we have no need to say anything. This is a church that shared their faith with others. They intentionally witnessed 
And the mission field was their city and went forth like, forth like a blasting trumpet to their community. This church was located in this busy city of trade and travel. And many heard the word of the Lord, whether they just got off the ship and somebody was there to share the gospel with them or traveling on the busy highways and involved in commerce. The influence they had was so well known that Paul just states, you know what, I don't even need to have say anything about it. People were telling Paul about the impact of this church as words spread about their incredible faithfulness and service. Verse 9, for they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So here is the very clear evidence that these people were God's elect because they had a complete break from their former life. They turned. It shows us, as I said before, that when a sinner is truly converted, there is a turning and going the opposite direction. Repentance is turning from sin. And in their case, they turned from their idol worship and instead submitted to Jesus Christ as the only true God. They had now become bond slaves of Jesus Christ, determined to serve the only true God. This is the responsibility of every church member, not just leaders of the church. Every one of us should be made up, the church should be made up of believers who share the good news with others. And ladies, we all come out of this building with different walks of life, different contexts, different situations that one doesn't have like another one has. We are the lights. We have to share the truth with the people we cross paths with. This is to be the norm for each one of us. God is calling out a body of believers, and it is our responsibility to give them the good news. It is the responsibility of every believer. The doctrine of election doesn't end the responsibility of sharing the gospel, quite the opposite. Rather, it's our greatest encouragement to witness because God has people who need to hear the truth. He's called us to give it to them. We don't know who is going to believe, but we're simply to be a mouthpiece that speaks truth to everyone who will listen. And then there's great comfort in that as well, that it is not based on our presentation of the gospel, that someone came to faith, or oops, we didn't say this clearly, or oops, whatever. It is God who takes his word as pathetic as we may often be. I'm not saying don't be prepared, to share the gospel and know its vital points, but it doesn't depend on you. When we turn from our sin to Christ, we are in that ever-changing experience then of becoming more and more like Jesus in our attitudes and in our actions. So I wonder what changes you can look back and see in the last month, three months, six months, a year, who can even remember last week? I don't know. But none of us, though, can be stagnant in our spiritual lives. We are to be ever-growing and ever-changing as the Spirit yet again reveals sin in our lives that we never saw before. I mean, there should be things that you didn't realize months ago or a year ago that now you know you can't react like that when you're driving in the car. You can't scream at people you don't even know. That dishonors the Lord. You ought to be convicted. Things should be different. You ought to be changing. And how you speak to the people in your home, the tone of voice you use, how you speak to people you don't even know, or, you know, on and on goes the list. The Lord is ever convicting us and reminding us this is not what he wants of us. He wants us to be like Jesus. The way we speak, speaking up for him. So we should be ever in that process of change, change, change. 
and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. It's interesting that Paul relates the second coming of Christ to their salvation. Because of their trust in Christ, they look for his return with so much joy and so much expectancy, knowing that then they'd be delivered. They'll be delivered from the wrath that is to come. Before their salvation, they worshipped idols. They had no hope at all. Everyone on this earth is enslaved to the fear of death. But now they have a living hope. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, as his death on the cross was that accepted payment for our sins, and when we trust him alone to forgive us and surrender our lives to him, he makes us a new creation, and now we have hope. We will be raised from the dead too. What an amazing truth as we look for the return of Christ that we can have every confidence that we have been rescued from the wrath to come. Jesus is our rescuer. He is our savior. He is the one who's rescued us from the wrath as Colossians 1.13 says, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So as you go about your busy days, I wonder, do you ever think of the reality that he could call us home right now, whether by death or catching his bride, the body of the church, up to be with him in a moment in the twinkling of an eye? How awful to be screaming at somebody when you're caught up to meet the Lord in the air. While we wait, we are to be busy obeying his word. We wait for his return. We wait for the redemption of our decaying bodies. We wait with hope, knowing that we will be like him then. He will take all of us who know him to his home that he has prepared for us, and he will reward us for service that we've faithfully done for him. We can have joy then, ladies, in the midst of trials because this is our hope as believers. We can endure. This life isn't going to last forever. The problems you're dealing with, the sorrows that you have will not follow you to the grave. We can make it just a little longer, ladies, until he comes or calls us home by death. So are you earnestly looking forward to that? Do you wake up even thinking about that? If not, then perhaps this world has become too comfortable, too much of your focus, too much of your home. This isn't our home. Make sure you've turned away from whatever you've been trusting in to be in a right relationship with the true and living God on his terms. And if you've done that, then the question is, does your life reflect spiritual truth like these believers that we've been looking at? Do you have works of faith on display in your life? Is there a labor of love as you serve others in a toilsome way? Is there a steadfastness of hope? Is your joy focused on your future, being in his presence? It is through the trials and challenges of life that we grow and that we learn to long more for heaven than life here on earth. This is our turn, ladies, to be the individuals and our local churches like these believers back at their time. So let's be more focused on our calling, on our hope, and stay faithful to do the work and share the truth of the gospel and his gift of salvation to everyone who crosses your path, even if it's a momentary brief witness in a grocery store line. You don't know what seeds you plant, and down the road the Lord sends somebody else, and then somebody else, and somebody else, and someone comes to faith. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this example to us of the Thessalonian believers that we're looking at. And I pray that we would emulate 
them and that we would be more like them and how we think and how we act and how we live, that we would be ever growing and becoming more and more godly in our actions, in our reactions. I pray that you would encourage each woman here as they walk out today. Lord, today could be the day you would return. Oh, how wonderful that would be. But I pray that we would live in light of that reality. Or the moment that we could walk out of here and be struck in an accident and be gone and in your presence. Lord, I pray that we would live our lives in the reality of those truths. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, ladies. Amen.